0: Christian never stops growing. That is the theme we're considering in the final part of a series in which we've been engaged on Sunday mornings based, as we've often mentioned, on the lectureship theme of the Memphis School of Preaching Lectures this past March, the New Testament Christian. And we've studied various topics from that uh, series presented on that occasion by various speakers. And under the heading of The Christian Never Stops Growing, we have determined to simply conclude the series with that general theme and looking, based upon 1 Peter, at the various qualities in which the child of God should never stop growing. And as the child of God grows in all of these things, then truly he or she will be pleasing to God. Our key text from 1 Peter chapter 2 comes from verse 2. As newborn babes, Peter writes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And then we've simply gone back through this first epistle to look at some of the things that uh, Peter mentioned in terms of qualities that we need to think about in terms of growth. For instance, grace and peace in verse 2 of First Peter chapter 1. And the hope that we have in Christ and the faith that we are to exhibit. But today we concentrate primarily and hopefully time permitting touch lightly at least upon two other qualities, concentrating primarily on love and touching briefly at least on joy. Because look in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 8, whom having not seen, speaking of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. These two qualities mentioned here are really inseparable. Love properly understood and applied to our lives, and if we're growing in that love, then joy should flow logically and naturally. From that, And our joy should increase in proportion to the increase of our love. And if we had any doubt as to whether or not this is a quality, love that is, in which we are uh, to grow, remember when we studied 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul made it abundantly clear in a direct admonition to those Thessalonian Christians That they were to increase and abound. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all as we do to you. Superlative upon superlative. Increase, that's one. Abound another in love. Yes, we are to increase and abound in love. Oh, a key quality indeed is love. But, you know, the definitions of the word love range from strong affection for something or someone to uh, a score of zero in tennis. We have quite a range of definitions of, of love. And it is clear that the misuse of the word love in our society has caused a great many people tragically to lose sight of the true biblical concept of love. For instance, what did Jesus mean when he used the word in this statement? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second, like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, 37 through 39. What did Jesus mean by love when he said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, verse 37. And what did the Lord intend by his use of this word love in John thirteen thirty-four? And 35, when he told his disciples a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In all of these passages, in all of these statements, Jesus used the word agape, the highest form of love, the kind of love that extends itself to others based upon the value of the object that is loved. Well, there's nothing as valuable as an immortal soul. And since all human beings possess such a soul, then all human beings are to be the objects of the Christian's agape love. There's no question about it. And this love demonstrates itself in acting toward others in keeping with what is best for them. Now, it does not always require the... The deep, warm affection that is uh, inherent in the meaning of the uh, word that is used in the New Testament at times for love, phileo, that's a different word than the word agape. But it is the word agape rather than phileo that is used in these statements that we have just cited. You see, the Lord does not require his followers to show warm affection toward those whose aim it is to hurt or destroy them. But he does require that his disciples demonstrate agape love and that they grow in that love and in all forms of love for that matter. But a love that acts in harmony with the best interests of all men. And when we exhibit that agape love, even for those who are characterized as our enemies and who have made it abundantly clear that they are enemies of truth, by doing this, by showing this kind of love, The followers of God and Christ reflect the love of God. They reflect the love of Christ in their lives. And they do something so vitally important in so doing. They show themselves to be totally different than those in the world. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount made it abundantly clear that it's easy to love those who love you, but it's far more challenging to love those who don't love you. Now of course, those of us who are brothers and sisters in Christ, it is absolutely imperative that we exhibit both the phileo love, the love for one another, and the agape love for all mankind. But we have a special relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ that we sustain to one another, and we should view that relationship as precious beyond description and producing the kind of joy about which we'll speak momentarily. Now, that's a brief background. Let's now look at some of the defining characteristics of the kind of love in which the Christian should never stop growing as we concentrate on biblical love. And in the scope of our lesson together today, it's not possible for us to examine every passage on love. The Bible is just replete with passages on love, but there is a passage in the New Testament, one passage in the New Testament that reveals three principles about love that permeate all of God's word, these principles that is, and that provide us with an excellent summary about the truth on love, the love in which we are to apply ourselves every day in growing in increasing and abounding in that love, as Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 12. That text is Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26, and I invite you to turn to that passage. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, if you notice, the word love is not even in that passage. The word is not there. It's not found in this text, but I think the concept clearly pervades these words of Jesus. And I believe the text here contains three characteristics of biblical love, biblical love that can be seen throughout the word of God. And those three principles are these, desire, denial, and decision. Desire, denial, and decision. And these three characteristics are. I believe provide us with great insights into the truth about love in both the Old and the New Testaments. The love that we must understand fully if we are going to grow in it sufficiently. In the first place, the passage tells us that love desires. Love desires. If any man desires to come after me. Throughout the Bible, love is held out to man by the God of heaven as the supreme and overwhelming motivation for our service to God. It is love that should create the desire that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 16, 24 in our text. It is love that should create that desire to follow the Lord. Discipleship begins with desire, and desire is produced by man's recognition of what God has done for him. And this is not something that's new to the New Testament. It has been the case under every dispensation of time, as we can clearly see from Scripture. I want to call your attention to one of the great patriarchs, Jacob. You know his name meant supplanter? He deceived, he deceived his father and supplanted his brother Esau's birthright supplanter, but he provides for us a great study in spiritual growth as we look at his account in the book of Genesis among the other patriarchs because of his increased understanding of the goodness of God, thus the love of God. As we said, we first see him as one who deceived his father, obtained the birthright and the blessing of his brother Esau, but then we follow him further in his relationship with God, and what we see as we do is a faith that is growing and a love that is developing as we see a greater dependence upon God. There's a very revealing incident about Jacob's faith in Genesis 35. It occurs after that dream of the ladder, and it occurs after his wrestling with the angel there. Those two incidents that serve to strengthen this man, Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel, as you recall. But in Genesis 35, 4, we find something here that's very significant as it relates to what we're talking about today, and that is we find the household of Jacob bringing to Jacob All of the strange gods, those idols, to which they had still clung at this particular time. These teraphim, these household gods or household idols, they still had them. And they brought them to Jacob at this time. Why did they do it? Because Jacob told them to do it. Notice Genesis 35, 2 through 4. Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God. Listen to it. Who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands, and the earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. Now this is a very important point in Jacob's life. Very significant turning point in Jacob's life. You see, his faith has grown. Why? Because of his clearer picture of the nature of God Almighty. And notice how he referred to God in the text we just read. Who answered me in the day of distress, and was with me in the way which I went. What's he saying? He's expressing his gratitude to a gracious, loving God for the blessings that God had bestowed upon him. And Jacob understood and appreciated those blessings, and now he has come to realize that God is not going to forsake him if he does not forsake God. It's a beautiful picture of spiritual progress through Jacob's realization of the love of God and Jacob's desire to love in return. We love him, remember John wrote, because he first loved us. And when we come to the Mosaic dispensation, Jacob is a part of the patriarchal age. But come on into the Mosaic age, and we find the same principle of service motivated by what? Motivated by love. Love was to produce the desire to keep God's commandments. And a brief look at some passages in the book of Deuteronomy will clearly reveal the relationship between love and law. Love and law. There are those today in the religious world, and tragically, yes, even in the church who are trying to tell us that love and law are mutually exclusive. That has never been the case. Love and law have always been mutually inclusive, inseparable. God has always desired for his servants in every dispensation of time to serve him out of that realization that Jacob grew into. And that is the realization that God so loved us that we should love in return. Listen to Deuteronomy 7 and verse 9. Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who, listen to this, who keep His commandments. No, with those who love Him and keep His commandments. There's that relationship with those who love Him and keep His commandments. You see, that statement reminds us that God blesses and approves those who what? Not just those who keep his commandments, but those who love him and keep his commandments. Now look at Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 16. Moses depicts love as the motivation for keeping God's commandments. He says, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. Moses reinforces the motivation of love in verse 20, that you might love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. In all these verses, and in others that could be cited, Love precedes law keeping. God has demonstrated his love to man in every dispensation of time. And such demonstrations were designed to motivate man to serve God from hearts filled to overflowing with gratitude and love for God's goodness. Now, think with me about the present age. Think with me about the time in which we live, the final dispensation of time. And think about the light of God's love now. The light of God's love has been brilliantly and beautifully displayed in His only begotten Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16, that wonderful golden text of the Bible, as it is so often called. And such boundless, matchless love desired. The salvation of all mankind God desired the salvation of all mankind and thus he showed his love to us in the giving of his only begotten Son and Christ showed that love in the giving of himself no one took the life of the Son of God and he said so as he walked upon the earth I lay it down lovingly and willingly in effect Paul declared what I've just said to be so in 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, didn't he? When he said, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, here's our word desire, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The love of heaven desired the salvation of every soul on earth. And Christ denied himself the continual glory of heaven and came to earth to make such salvation possible. Oh, what love that should evoke. Recognition of such love should create within us the loving desire to become his disciples. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. However, love that produces desire is not sufficient. You see, in the text we're looking at in Matthew 16, Jesus declares that denial is an essential characteristic of love. Love not only desires, and love should produce that desire, but desire has to lead to denial. Not diminishing self as we have talked about in the past, but denying self. Remember as we've just recently studied in our Sunday night series in Philippians in his admonition to Christians to adopt the mind of Christ, what did Paul write in Philippians 2, 5 through 8? He depicted the denial that Christ's love prompted him to make. And then he says to us, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. That's denial. Taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of of the cross the finite mind can scarcely comprehend the depth of the denial that jesus made for mankind our finite minds can't comprehend the depth of that denial that jesus made for all of us well, we need to spend a lot of time trying to comprehend it and letting the effort to comprehend it produce within us the response that God intended for it to produce. He sacrificed the splendor of heaven and descended to earth to die the most horrific and humiliating death known to mankind, even the death of the cross. And Jesus made it clear that just as a cross was necessary for him, a cross is going to be necessary for you and for me and for all who would seek to follow in his sinless steps. You see taking up our cross involves a denial of self and a sanctifying of the Lord in our hearts and lives. The follower of Christ doesn't add a throne to his heart as it were. He doesn't add the throne to his heart of Christ along with the throne of himself, there are not two thrones. We dethrone self and enthrone the Savior in the heart if we're to be worthy disciples. All other earthly relationships must be secondary to our service to the Savior. And Jesus made that abundantly clear in Matthew 10. 32 through 39, he talked about confessing me before men, him will I confess before the Father in heaven, whoever does that, who denies me, I will deny him, and then he goes on to say, for do not think that I came to bring peace on earth, I did not come to bring priests but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And then he says, he who finds his life will lose it. In other words, you you give me up to save your life now, you're going to lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life for my sake, you will find it. You'll find eternal life. And that confession that Jesus discussed in the text we've just mentioned. is not merely the one made with the mouth before baptism, though certainly that would be included, but it also involves the continual confession of a faithful life by the obedient disciple. Love prompts one to believe in Christ, to repent, to confess him to be the Christ, and to be baptized for the remission of sins. But once saved and added to the church by the Lord himself, the disciple must then live that confession daily, before others. Brother Ron expressed that so beautifully in his prayer. That we are to allow others to see Christ in us. Not not see us, but to see Christ in us. We must demonstrate to everyone that a new master has taken over. A new master rules the life. And no other earthly bond, however sweet or however special that bond is, supersedes this loving relationship that we now have with the Lord of our lives and if told that one must give up Christ to save any of those earthly relationships the disciple must be willing to take his stand with the savior in Luke 14:33 Jesus said so likewise whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple We've said it before, remember he didn't say, who does not forsake all that he has cannot be one of my best disciples. If you don't forsake all that you have, you can be on the list of disciples, but you can't be near the top. He doesn't say that. He says you don't make the list, period, without being willing to forsake all that you have. That's the attitude we must have. The Apostle Paul understood that love denies self expressed it so powerfully and poignantly in Galatians 2:20, I've been crucified with Christ. he said "It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, love has to decide between two masters. and that brings us to our next point. Love decides. You've got two choices, God or Satan. No, I want three, God or Satan or something in between. No, that's not a choice. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and despise the other or he will cling to the one and despise the other. Love the one or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. Then Jesus said you cannot serve God and mammon you can't have it both ways and in that portion of the Sermon on the Mount from which that text in Matthew six twenty four comes Jesus says in effect the love that decides also divides the love that decides also divides because we cannot halt or falter between two opinions as Elijah told the prophets of Baal We're either going to have to choose the lust of the world or the light of the world. The lust of the world or the light of the world. It's a decision that leads to a distinction in the disciple that the world clearly acknowledges and many times detests. The world looks at the disciple who has desired and denied, and decided to follow Jesus, and says, I hate what you represent. But the Christian gladly suffers that reproach for the rewards of godly living that are his or hers, here and hereafter. You remember the fervent plea that Paul made to the Christians at Rome? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul is calling for a complete commitment to the Christ above and not conformity to the crowd around. You cannot have it both ways. The concept of sanctification permeates God's word. And when we're sanctified, we're set apart for a holy use. We're different because we've made a decision to set our minds on things above and not on things on the earth. And love influenced the decision to obey, and the love that influenced the decision is the love that should direct every thought and action thereafter. One of my favorite passages that I believe summarizes it splendidly concerning the love in which the Christian is to never stop growing is 2 Corinthians five fourteen and 15. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if Christ died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again. Could it be put more succinctly or splendidly than the Apostle Paul puts it there? Never stop growing in that love and let that love produce a joy that the Scripture tells us is inexpressible. Inexpressible, unspeakable. That's the joy that is experienced by the child of God who knows that joy because he follows the example of Jesus, who experiences that unspeakable joy because he feeds upon the Word. Of God. You don't think all of these qualities that get us all back to the Word as we mentioned in Bible class this morning? Listen to 1 John 1 and verse 4. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. These things we what? These things we write that your joy may be full. Doesn't that remind us again of the all-sufficiency of the Word of God as we talked about extensively in Bible class this morning? These things we write to you in order that your joy may be full. What will produce a joy that is inexpressible, a joy that continues to intensify every day that we live? The word of God. These things we write that your joy may be full. Listen to 2 John verse 12. Having many things to write to you, John writes here, I did not wish to do so with Paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that your joy may be full. Now, again, that's still the Word of God, isn't it? But a little different take. These things I write to you that your joy may be full. I wanted to write many things with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you shortly so that I can speak to you face to face. Does that not tell us that the written Word of God? will produce a joy that is growing, but that also our coming together and speaking to one another face to face is an integral and important part of a joy that continues to grow? Doesn't that tell us of the value of the assembly, the value of being together, the importance of considering one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the custom of some is? but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. You're not going to be made stronger by refusing or neglecting to be together face-to-face, but rather weaker. I hope to see you, in effect, John said, face-to-face that your joy may be full and yes even in adversity there's a joy that can never be taken away as we often talked about. Even in suffering, even in trial, the Christian as we have often said is the only one who can make that work for him. Robert Browning wrote, was the trial sore? Temptation sharp. Thank God a second time. Why comes temptation but for man to meet and master and make crouch beneath his feet and so be pedestaled in triumph? Where did Browning get that idea? I dare say from James. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. Knowing that the trying of your faith works patience, but let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing." Joy for the child of God cannot be taken away even in adversity because we can rejoice in the Lord always. And the more we feed upon the Word, the more that joy intensifies. And the more that love grows. It cannot be said of you this morning that you are growing in love or joy if you're outside of Christ. Because joy is in the Lord. And love must manifest itself by desiring, as we've talked about from Matthew 16, 24 through 26. But also by denying and deciding. And if you have not believed and allowed that faith to move you to repent of your sins and to confess Jesus as the Christ and to be buried in baptism, then you have not expressed your love as God desires for you to express it. And you are not keeping his commandments, therefore you're not loving. If you love me, remember, keep my commandments. If you haven't become a child of God, in the only way you can, by following those simple but significant steps a belief that leads you to change your mind in repentance, confess sweetly the name of Christ and be buried with him in baptism where his blood cleanses you from sin. We plead with you to do that. That you may rise from a watery grave with a joy that is unspeakable and a love that has manifested itself in responding to the love that makes possible your salvation and growing every day thereafter in that love and in that joy. If you know that you had that love and manifested it in obedience at one time and that joy was yours, but you've been robbed of that joy because you've robbed yourself of it by a life that is out of harmony with the God who loves you supremely. And you need to come home to him in repentance and confession of sin that is publicly known that we may pray with you and for you to the God who still loves you But he will not save you until you in love come back to where you once were. As we stand to sing, we invite you to come.